August 21st, 2023, the Wall Street Journal um, ran a front page story and the headline was The Booming Business of American Anxiety. And it started with this paragraph. A search for anxiety relief on Google pulls up links for supplements in the form of pills, patches, gummies, and mouth sprays. There are vibrating devices you can purchase to hang around your neck and are supposed to quote-unquote tone your vagus nerve. There's weighted stuffed animals, bead-filled stress balls, and coloring books that claim to bring calm. The point of the article is that there's a lot of money now in the way in which we deal with our anxieties, our cares, and our worries. And they mentioned some newer ones, but of course there's counseling services that people pay money for, there's, there's medicine that many people find helpful, there's books that people read, and then there's just good old-fashioned food, which some of us turn to in our anxiety. Uh, why why are, are we at this place? Uh, you know, since the age of, or since the middle of the 20th century, we've been in what is called the age of information. And uh, in 1945, for example, the volume of the world's knowledge, all that the world knew, doubled every 25 years. It took 25 years for the world's collective knowledge to double in 1945, 25 years. Today, every 12 hours, the world's collective knowledge doubles. Today, twice, the knowledge that this world has will double. There's two things that we may not have anticipated when we stepped into the age of information. The first one is that the age of information has also led to the age of misinformation. <laughs> and uh, you know this to be true, that there's a lot of information on the web and out there on the internet and that is not actually true. But also the age of information, which is now actually more referred to as the digital age, has led to what sociologists are calling the age of anxiety. The age of anxiety. There's so many reasons, but three reasons real quick. Number one, we know now quicker when bad things are happening around the world. I mean, you know, you can be as up-to-date as you want on what's happening in Israel and in Gaza right now. You can know everything that's happening in Ukraine. Uh, when the shooting happened this past week in Maine, many of us knew within seconds that something was going on. Years ago, you only knew about the bad things happening really in your immediate circles, your home, your community, your schools, your family. And while you worried about those things, you didn't have as many things to worry about as you do now. And with the age of information and with the digital age, all of a sudden, we have a lot more to get worried about. Number two, because of the digital age and because of social media, we know what everybody's doing all the time. We have unprecedented access to each other's lives. So we know what other people are buying, what they're wearing, where they're eating, where they're traveling, what they look like. And with it comes this pressure and these worries and these cares and these concerns of, is my life as fulfilling as theirs? Do I look the way that they look? Do I have the money that they have? We look at their highlight reels on Instagram and we assume that's what their life is always like. But the third reason why I think the age of information in the digital age has led to this age of anxiety is because we have so much information now that we, uh, we have access to things that make us worry about things we otherwise wouldn't have known to worry about about ourselves. So, for example, I've had this little, I got this little bump on my head. My girl's like, Dad, don't talk about that. That's gross. But, but I, I got I to get it out, right? So I got this little bump on my head. And I've had it for a couple years, and it wasn't super concerning to me. But last time I went to my primary care physician, she looked at it, and she goes, you, should, you probably should get that looked at by a professional. 
I was like, hold on, aren't you a professional? <laughs> what, what am I doing here? Uh, and she said, no, no, like a professional professional, like a, like a dermatologist. So she gave me a referral, and I went to the dermatologist, and I did, once, once, she made, once she said that, I did what you would have done. I went home, got on my laptop, and Googled, I have a bump on my head, what is it, right? And 15 varieties of that sentence. And within minutes, I had about 24 possible diagnoses of what was going on, half of which had me dead in a year. <laughs> so now I'm worried and anxious, and I go to the dermatologist, and she takes one look at it, and she goes, oh, that's nothing. That's just, that's just age. That's just age, and she calls it a collector's item. You're going to keep collecting them. I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. Age and hereditary. So I blame my mom for that, that bump on my head. We have all this access to information, and it's making us anxious. And actually, this age of anxiety is being well captured in films and television shows and books and music. I want to show you the lyrics for a couple popular songs that are out right now that I think capture it well. One is a song by Billie Eilish. It's off of the Barbie, the Barbie movie soundtrack. And the song is called, What Was I Made For? This is what she says. She says, I used to float. Now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now. What was I made for? I don't know how to feel, but someday I might. When did it end? All the enjoyment. I'm sad again. Don't tell my boyfriend. It's not what he's made for. So what was I made for? This sense of loss of identity and purpose and uncertainty. And then a band called Arcade Fire wrote a song actually called The Age of Anxiety. And in it, they sing this. It's the age of doubt, and I doubt we'll figure it out. Is it you or is it me? The age of anxiety. We try to fight the fever with TV. In the age where nobody sleeps and the pills do nothing for me. In the age of anxiety. When I look at you, I see what you want me to see. What you want me to. And when you look at me, you see what I want you to see. What I want you to see. In the age of anxiety. What he's singing about here is some of the ways in which we deal with our worries and our cares and our concerns. We try to drown them and numb them with binging entertainment and television shows. And, or we turn to medicine. I'm not against medicine. Some people that's very helpful for and is necessary for. But still, we struggle with our worries and our anxieties and our concerns. And then he ends this portion of his lyrics by talking, I think, about social media. You only see the me that I want you to see. And I only see the you that you want me to see. And, and, and we don't really know each other, and it leads to these worries, specifically the worry of if you really knew me, you'd run. So here we are, age of anxiety. What do Christians do with this? What unique inner resources should we have to tap into when it comes to our cares, our worries, and our anxieties? And that's what this morning's passage is all about. So First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or all your cares or all your worries or all your burdens on him because he cares for you. So be sober-minded and be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, the first thing to note here is that Christians have cares. Peter is not writing to non-Christians. Peter's writing to Christians. And he doesn't say to them, what do you mean all those anxieties? Come on, get it together. You're a Christian. You love Jesus. Jesus loves you. You shouldn't have cares. You shouldn't have worries. You shouldn't have anxieties. Be better. Pretend they're not real. Believe really hard that they're not real and they won't be. Or yell really loud that they're not real and they'll go away. But there's none of that in the Christian faith. To be a Christian is not an escape from reality. To be a Christian is to be invited into a truer reality, making us very aware of the things within us and around us. See, Peter tells them what to do with their cares, not to ignore them. He doesn't say pretend that your cares don't exist. He says cast your cares on the one who has always existed. It's very different. Peter knows that we all have cares, anxieties, and worries, and every single person in this room would nod and say, yeah, it's true. Christians are no exceptions. So... If these words are to Christians, what do we do with our worries? There's three things that we need to remember that will help us move forward. And the first thing is this. Our cares are a shared experience. Our cares are a shared experience. You've probably heard the saying, misery loves company, right? Misery loves company. And it's true. Have you ever noticed that when somebody eats something disgusting, they need to offer it to other people, right? You take a bite, like, oh, this is gross. Try it. Or this smells terrible. Smell it, right? It's like, you know, we have a bad experience. We post about it online. We tell people misery loves uh, company. But when it comes to anxiety and worries and cares, you need to know this morning, you are not alone. It is a shared human experience. And Peter says this in verse 9. Look at it. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing what? Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is providing them context for their suffering. He's saying, yes, you are suffering, but remember that everyone else is suffering too. Yes, you have cares and worries and anxieties, but everyone else does. And if you don't, then just watch the news and look around and you'll have your own. I saw a statistic just yesterday from the Assemblies of God World Missions Organization that said that today, as we sit in this space comfortable There are over 360 million Christians around the world who are being persecuted in some way for their faith. 360 million Christians, not 2,000 years ago, today being persecuted just because they love and serve Jesus. And when we realize that other people are suffering and other people have their cares, worries, and anxieties, it doesn't diminish our suffering. It doesn't devalue our worries or concerns. What it does is it gives us context and it protects us in a way from ourselves when we begin to believe the lie that I am uniquely suffering or I am uniquely worried or I am uniquely anxious and no one could possibly understand what I'm going through and actually causes us to pull away from the very community that we need to find our way through. Last week, I talked about a quote from C.S. Lewis, 1948. He was talking about the atomic bomb. Uh, I want you to see, I want you to hear the first half of this quote. I didn't share this last week, but I think it relates to this week's message. Remember, this is 1948. The atomic bomb is like on the mind of everybody. He's in Europe. He's in England. Everybody thinks the world is about to end, and this is what he says. He says, in one way, we think a great deal too much about the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? This is the question everybody's asking. How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to do my laundry? How am I supposed to go to work when atomic bombs exist? Right? How do I move forward? And he says, I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, 
Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway, railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. And this is what he says. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. And when we, when we forget that cares are a shared experience, this is the danger. We will begin to exaggerate the novelty of our situation. And the reason why we do it, according to this passage, is the word pride. Pride. Pride is myself at the center of everything. Me in the middle, at the center of everything, everything rotating and revolving around me. And we're all prone to this. Like, think about this. After church, if we were to all go outside together as a group and take a big group picture, and then I posted it on Facebook this afternoon, and you log into Facebook, and you found the post, and you get to that picture, who are you looking at first? Whose face are you looking at first? You're looking at you. You're just like me. I'm going to look at myself first. And here's the crazy part. You will decide whether it's a good picture or not before you look at anyone else's face. You know, like, it could be, it could be, everybody else could look terrible, eyes closed, mouths open, shirts, you know, untucked, whatever, you know, you, everybody, but if you, if it's the right angle and the right lighting and the right smile from you, you're like, frame it, frame it, great, great picture. But everybody else could be having the best hair day ever, and if you got some wonky face going in the picture, you're going to email me, could you take that picture off Facebook, I don't, Right? Pride is myself at the center of everything. And Peter teaches us here that there is a direct connection between pride and worry. Because the verse starts with the verb, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That verb is the command. It's the imperative. But then it goes on to say, comma, casting your cares upon God. Casting is a participle that is connected to the imperative humble. So here's what Peter is teaching us. One of the evidences that you are humbling yourself under God's mighty hand is that you are giving your anxieties, worries, and cares to the Lord. So inversely, if you are not giving your cares, anxieties, and worries to the Lord, and you're holding on to them for yourself, that's a sign of pride. Pride is when we are overly self-assured, overly self-reliant, overly self-absorbed, overly self-centered. And when you and I are overly self-assured regarding our opinions, our perspectives, and our preferences, then here's the problem. We can't imagine any outcome that is good other than the one that we want. And so we worry that it's not going to be the exact outcome because we know best. That's pride. When we are self-reliant, we trust in ourselves more than God, and we need to take control over every situation. We don't want to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We want circumstances under our mighty hands. We want to be in control. And when we are so self-absorbed about our own cares and lost in our own worries, the danger is, is that we will not be able to care for other people and their concerns. Galatians 6.2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Burden is another word that can be translated cares, concerns, anxieties, worries. Bear one another's burdens because it fulfills the law of Christ. It's an act of obedience to actually cast our cares upon God. Why? So that we can live carefree? No, so that I can help bear your burden. And if my hands and my heart is weighted down with all of my stuff all of the time, and I don't learn how to give it to God, then I actually am not well positioned to help others. And this is a shared experience. Now, last thought I want to say on this first point is this. Our cares are a shared experience, 
but they're not just shared by other humans. They're actually shared by the greatest human. They're shared by Jesus, who is called in the scriptures our great high priest. Jesus was a man who knew the cares of this world. Look at Jesus in the garden, the night on which he's betrayed, just moments before he's going to be arrested, unfairly tried, tortured, beaten, and executed, and bearing the sin and shame of the world. We find him in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. And is he calm? Is he cool? Is he collected? He is so emotionally and mentally distraught that there is a medical condition where when you get to that point, the actual like capillaries near the edge of your skin will begin to burst from stress and anxiety and worry, and blood will actually come through the skin. That's what, that's what we think is happening there because it says that Jesus sweat great drops of blood. He wasn't sweating blood. He was actually under, he was so feeling the cares and worries of going to the cross and experiencing separation from the Father and becoming our sin that we might become his righteousness. And in that moment, we see someone who shares and knows what it's like to be weighed down and weighted down by these things. See, as Christians, we do not expect to avoid moments like this because we're following Jesus. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you're gonna follow him into the garden. And you're gonna follow him in a way to the cross. You're gonna take up your cross daily. So following Jesus is not a way out of the anxieties, carries, and worries of this world. In fact, often following Jesus is a way into those things because as followers of Jesus, we begin to feel things in our spirit that we otherwise wouldn't feel. And now we have new concerns, cares, and worries for people's spiritual well-being that we otherwise would not have had. And so following Jesus is not a way out of these things. It's often a way into them, but it's also the way through them as we follow him and serve him. Jesus was a man of sorrows who suffered tremendously, and we will also suffer. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you won't have cares and worries. Listen, Christianity is the only religion who at its very center is an event that depicts the humiliation of its own God. And if this is the belief and the person that we've committed ourselves to, then we should not be surprised when we have our cares and our worries, but we don't have to carry them alone. The invitation is cast them. On the Lord. As a church, we've spent 40 days reading through First and Second Peter. We just finished this week. And I went back and looked at this passage and read through some of the comments that people in our church posted. And I, I want to read a couple to you, one now, one later. This is from Bethany Anderson, who's our youth director here at the church. She wrote these words she, about this passage. She said, we can know Jesus cares. We can know he understands because he himself suffered. He was abandoned. He felt the weight of the world on his shoulders, literally. Yet he trusted his father's plan. He obeyed in the toughest of times, and he did it for you and me. He did it so we could have a relationship with him. He gives us an example of prayer that we don't always think about, of just coming to the father and just crying out in despair. We don't have to have it all together. We don't always have to have the perfect words to say. We can question the steps as we take them. He just wants us to come to him as we are and feel his nearness, to know that he hears us and cares for us more deeply than we could ever imagine. See, the way forward is not to pretend it away, wish it away, or even, quote-unquote, faith it away. The way forward is to trust God, hold on to Jesus, and know that our cares are a shared experience. Second thing that we learn from this passage is that our cares are a spiritual experience. They're spiritual. Verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it's like the devil, Peter, calm down. I mean, why all of a sudden this talk about the devil? <laughs> and C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the devil, he says that Christians often make two um, equal but opposite mistakes when it comes to things like the devil. And one he calls substition, and one he calls superstition. Superstition is like the devil is responsible for every bad thing in your life. Somebody took your parking spot at Target, it's the devil. <laughs> you got indigestion this morning, it's, never mind the fact that you ate pizza late at night, it's the devil, right? Everything's the devil. And there are some people who actually think about, focus about, and talk about the devil more than they talk about Jesus. That's a superstition that C.S. Lewis says, be careful about that. But there's also a substition, which is like in our modern world, people are like, really? I mean, we got, we got actual natural explanations for why things happen. Surely we've moved beyond this whole thing about a, a devil and an evil force and demons and things like that, right? And yet, Peter talks about the devil here as if, like, everybody knows there is an enemy. And I think what's helpful about the way Peter talks about the devil is he calls him our adversary. One of the best ways to understand the devil is that he's against you. He is against you. He is not for you in any way. He comes to kill and destroy, and he is against you. And how does he express his adversarial ways towards us? Well, the word adversary can also be interpreted slanderer or accuser. And this is the work of the enemy. Now, the voice of the devil you may hopefully never hear in an audible sort of way, but you may hear it in other ways. You may hear it through other people. It may be lies. So, so as a slander, typically slander is when someone lies about you to someone else, right? Isn't that slander? That's not really what the devil does. The devil lies about you to you. So the devil slanders you to yourself. And his voice might sound like this. You're worthless. You're useless. You're hopeless. You'll die alone. No one loves you. No one cares about you. If people knew you, they wouldn't be your friends. They wouldn't be around you. You've made too many mistakes. You've messed up too many times. You've disqualified yourself. When you hear that voice in your heart and in your mind, that is the accuser of the brethren. That is our adversary, the devil. He's slandering you to you. That's what he does. But he also accuses us. And one of the ways that he accuses us is that he uses our greatest worries and concerns and fears and he roars them into our hearts. And so here's the danger of not casting our cares upon the Lord. If we don't learn to bring our cares to the Lord in prayer and just trust him with it, say, Lord, this is on my heart and I give it to you and I trust you with it. If we don't give it to the Lord, then it ends up often in the hands of our adversary. And now he really has something to roar against us and to try to devour us with. There is a difference, by the way, between the voice of the Holy Spirit who wants to talk to you about your sin and the voice of the devil who also wants to talk about your sin. And the difference is this. Both are pointing to your sin, but for radically different reasons. See, this is, this is how one um, author puts it. When Satan accuses us of our sin, it's to ruin us, cripple us, and destroy us. But when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it's to redeem us. And cleanse us. Being convicted of the Holy Spirit can be an exceedingly painful process. In fact, if the Holy Spirit hasn't in some ways pained you recently, you might not be listening to him well enough. The Holy Spirit and listening to him, at times the conviction can be painful, repentance can be painful, but there's always something sweet about it. The outcome of repentance is the restoration of the joy of our salvation. When the Spirit convicts it, we recognize it and we take it to Jesus, not for destruction, but for healing and forgiveness. But Satan's 
goal is not our redemption or our restoration, but our ruin. He is our adversary. He's against us. He's like this prowling lion seeking whom he might devour. See, our cares are often normal things that we give into the hands of the enemy, so to speak, allowing him to lie to us about those things. So most of your anxieties and cares in your life are very healthy things, right? Worry and concern is a healthy thing because it keeps us safe many times, gives us wisdom. We're worried about our children. We're worried about our health. We're worried about the things that are happening around the world. However, when we don't give them to the Lord, now they're in the hands of the adversary, and now he can start to lie to you about those worries. He'll make you think you're alone. He'll make you think that there's no way forward. He'll make you think that God is somehow taking a time out and isn't paying attention. See, this is a spiritual thing. Spiritual. Don't, don't mishear me. Human battles with anxiety are not purely spiritual. There are other things at work, mental, physical, sociological, physiological. I believe that. But there is always a spiritual component, and we overlook this, and we underestimate it. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says it this way. Look at this verse real quick. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, because the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought, because this is often where we are hearing the lies, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Taking thoughts captive to obey Christ, I think, is synonymous with casting your cares upon the Lord. And did you notice that in this verse, the language is violent. It's jarring. There's words like this, waging war, warfare, power, destroy, strongholds, captive. And you might be sitting here going, Pastor David, I get it. And this is a problem for me. But dealing with my thought life and dealing with these things that eat me up and keep me up at night, it's hard. And all I would say is, well, yeah. That's why Peter and Paul use this strong language. It's not just hard. It's war. It's a spiritual battle. But don't show up to a spiritual war in your flip-flops and jammies, wiping the sleepies out of your eyes. And here's my concern is that most, many Christians are slower than they should be to realize that what seems to be their natural cares, worries, and anxieties are actually a spiritual battle. And how do we stand firm? We resist the devil. We stand firm by casting our cares upon the Lord. So the worries and anxieties that we have about our marriages, about our children, about our future, about our health, about the state of our country, about the state of this world, yeah, those are natural things, but there's a spiritual battle in our hearts Are we going to give those to the Lord or are we going to allow the enemy to use them to roar them against us like a lion? We have to, here's my point, and I'll I'll get to the last one. You have to fight in this area. You're not going to get victory here just by sitting back and hoping all of a sudden you feel better one day. You actually have to do something. You have to fight in this area, and here's the good news you don't fight alone. Obviously, you have the spirit of God and the grace of God and the community. We need each other. We need other people to fight for us. And Peter, who wrote these words, he knew this so well. Because let me bring you back real quick before we get to the last point. Luke 22, it's the night that Jesus is betrayed. Jesus and Peter are talking. Look at this verse in Luke 22. Jesus turns to Peter, who he also called Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. (laughs) That's Really intense language that Jesus is using here. This is, this is war. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He wants to break you down and make you useless. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, in the next verses, 
Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times before the rooster crows. So Jesus knows that actually, even though I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail, Peter, Jesus knows what's going to happen to Peter. And then he says this, when you turned again, in other words, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, I still have a work for you to do. You're going to mess up, but I still have a work for you to do. And when you look at this verse, I want you to think of this kind of something that Jesus might say to you. Put your name in. David, David, Satan is demanded to have you. He wants to shake you. He wants to sift you. He wants to make you useless. He wants to steal from you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to kill you. He's your adversary. He's against you. But here's what Jesus says, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Jesus is our high priest who sits at the right-hand side of the Father and lives forever to make intercession for you and me. So even though Satan wants to have your soul and wants to fill your life with anxieties and worries and cures, one of the things that will strengthen you is to remind yourself, Jesus himself is praying for me right now. He's praying for you so that we will not fail, but if we do, that we will return and find our way to minister to one another. Last thing this morning, I'm asking Pastor Antonia to join me up here. So our cares are shared experience, they are a spiritual experience, but also they are a short-lived experience. Verse 10, Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now here's my problem with this verse. That phrase, a little while, is what the commentators call intentionally vague intentionally vague. It would be nice if God said, after you suffer for two years, after you suffer for two months or two weeks, he doesn't put a timeline on it because we don't know God's plans and purposes, but he does make a promise that it will not be forever. After you've suffered a little while, commentators say, we don't know if this is the promise of restoration in this life or if it's the promise of restoration in a later life. Sometimes we experience some of it here, Thank God for that. But we will not experience all of it until we are with him. He says there's four things that God will do for you in just a little while. Oh, hang on. If your anxieties, worries, cures, suffering, sorrow, in a little while, here's four things he will do. He will restore you, which means everything that you've lost in your suffering, he's going to give it back to you. Everything is going to be restored to you. You've lost people. You've lost joy. You've lost abilities. You've lost moments, you've lost innocence, you've lost strength, you've lost hope. In a little while, he will restore it all to you. Then it says that he will confirm, and that verb confirm means that someday we'll see God and we'll realize every promise he said he kept. Every promise, everything about himself that he said he is, he is. Everything he said he would do, he did, he's true. He will strengthen us, which means that every inadequacy in us for overcoming evil, that eventually it will be gone, and we will serve Jesus the way we wish we had always served him. And then he will establish us firmly in any position, uh, rightful privilege or responsibility, which suffering has taken from us. In sum, the loss, all loss, will soon be made right, and it will be made right for all of eternity after a little while. Our suffering is short-lived in the light of eternity. The last reading that I want to read for you, or the last thing that was written that I want to read for you from our Bible reading plan was written by Connie Henderson. Connie was in our first service, and if you don't know Connie, the doctors have given her a terminal diagnosis, and she's facing some significant medical issues. And about this passage, she wrote these words. I want you to hear what she said. 
She said, whether God heals me in the land of the living or in his eternal kingdom, to him be the power forever and ever. She says, my God is sufficient. I stand on his word, his character, and his love for me. His love is overflowing and his wisdom is supreme. Do you know how I know that she's casting her cares upon the Lord? Because even as she's facing this, she's able to say his wisdom is supreme. He, He knows what he's doing. He knows best. So each day I place that day in his hands and I pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I continue to believe and ask for a total healing here on earth. It's part of my heritage bought for me by the blood of my Savior when he went to the cross and died and rose again by the power of his Father. His are the eternal hands I rest in. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's what it looks like to cast your cares upon the Lord, believing that he cares for you. See, the comforting thought that he will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us is all connected to the reminder that God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Friends, eternal glory is a long time. Suffering, anxieties, worries, and cares, it's for a little while. It's for a little while. When my wife Erin was delivering our first daughter, Lilia, 15 plus years ago, I remember being in the delivery room Rarely in my life have I felt more useless than in that space and in that time. And yet I found something that I could do. I would sit next to her as the contractions came. And her contractions, if I remember correctly, correctly would last about a minute. And I would hold her hands and I would count her through. Not every second, of course, that would be annoying. But, but, but at the 30 second mark, I would say, it's 30 seconds to go. You're almost there, babe. 15 seconds, you're there five, four, three, and almost like clockwork, it would subside and she'd breathe and rest and prepare for the next set of contractions. What I was doing in that moment wasn't much of a gift. I wasn't able to take any of the pain away from her, but what I was basically whispering to her was, it's a little while. It's a little while. And then we're going to have this joy of new life. And that's the promise to Christians. Whatever you're going through this morning, whatever concerns, worries, cares, anxieties are on your heart, it's a little while. And then he will establish you, strengthen you, confirm you, make you strong. How do we whisper into each other's ears? It's not 15 seconds, 20 seconds. It's this. Here's what we whisper in each other's ears. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. He's called you to his eternal glory. And we remind each other of God's faithful promises. And we say, cast them on the Lord because he cares for you. Let's pray together this morning.